Hello, it's Tuesday, 22nd of February. I'm Hannah Pearson. Welcome to part four of our two years of travel disruption series as Gary Bowman and I track back through the travel initiatives that failed to get off the ground since the start of the pandemic. So let's get started. This is the Southeast Asia Travel Show. Hello, wherever you are in the world, and thanks for listening in. So, as we know, it's almost two years since Southeast Asian nations began shutting their borders as COVID-19, or the first variant, the novel coronavirus, began to spread across our region and then beyond. So for part four of our two years of travel disruption series, Hannah and I have put together a list of the travel proposals, the initiatives, and the developments that didn't happen over the last two years, or if they did happen, they proved to be quite short-lived. So Hannah, there are some obvious picks we could start with, but I've decided to go with a more offbeat choice, which is one that you selected, and that's Geno's. Tell us about Geno's. Yeah, exactly, Gary. I mean, and Geno's was something that I was so excited about. I remember, you know, telling everybody, this is going to revolutionize travel. And essentially, it was a breathalyzer test that would test for COVID um, that was being rolled out in Indonesia. So this was approved late December 2020. It had massive benefits over RT-PCR testing, over antigen testing. You know, it was very cheap. It was very fast. It was painless. But I guess, you know, like they say, you, you can't have cheap, fast and good, right? So um, it, it turned out, well, I mean, it has never really been officially confirmed, but it was generally kind of understood to be that these tests were not so efficient at picking up COVID-19 as perhaps the government thought that they were. I mean, at this point, they had really been implemented across airports, across railway stations. There were more plans of rolling it out at tourist attractions too, but slowly that was backtracked. And, you know, by mid-June last year, Bali actually ditched it altogether and um, announced that domestic travellers would have to have an RT-PCR test. Um, you know, they said that this this was the gold standard of detecting COVID. And after that, it was kind of phased out. It really fizzled out. So this was something, yeah, that, that really looked like it was going to revolutionize things. And especially if you remember, you know, beginning of last year, mid last year, still vaccination wasn't that high. So testing was, you know, the, the way forward for travel. But ultimately, it came to nothing. Yeah, that's a great start. And it's one I'd completely forgotten. I remember that we talked about it. And I remember at that time as well, there were all sorts of different kind of innovations in testing. I think there was a paper touch test in India. There were a few others. Most of those sort of fell by the wayside. But yeah, Geno's, that's a great way to start. So the next one, and this is one from you, Gary. And again, it's one that I had completely forgotten. Just just remind us, how many billion arrivals did, uh, did Pata predict coming into APAC at the beginning of 2020? Yeah, well, I'd forgotten this one too, Hannah, but we both went back through our archives and I found a headline from January 2020. So January 2020, bear that in mind, because that's right at the start of, uh, of COVID-19 actually starting to impact. Uh, the Pacific Asia Travel Association predicted that almost 1 billion arrivals would come into the 39 destinations of Asia Pacific by 2024. Now, this was part of their 2020 to 2024 forecasting. They tried to figure out five years ahead, obviously at that time from 2019 when they would have done the research. It was a buoyant time for travel and tourism. And they anticipated that by 2024, 971 million international visitor arrivals, so almost a billion, 
would be arriving in Asia Pacific by 2024. Now, this was based on, as I said, the, the data from 2014 through 2019. So there had been an average growth uh, across those years of international visitors of 5.3%. And Pata projected that for the next five years, 2019 to 2024, that average would increase to 6.3% per annum. Um, and that would, get this, that would have resulted in an acceleration of more than 256 million additional international visitors into the region between 2019 and 2024. We all know what happened next, Hannah. Guess it's a bit of a case study of the dangers of forecasting, but also the unpredictability of, of what's happened over the past two years. Yeah, absolutely. As you know, as everybody says, it's one of those events that just could never have been predicted. And like you said, it's, it's tricky, isn't it? And we know even trickier now to do uh, any kind of modeling. Yeah, absolutely. So let's move back to science, Hannah. This is another of your scientific uh, choices. And this was Vietnam producing its home-developed vaccine. What happened to that? Yeah, so um, if you remember, and it's still the case, so Vietnam has is one of the Southeast Asian countries that has really focused on trying to develop its own COVID-19 vaccine. Um, and one of its front runners was the Nanocovax um, vaccine. Um, and I think they're developing at least two others, possibly some more. And if you remember, Vietnam at the beginning of 2021 actually didn't enter that many procurement agreements with international manufacturers. And I think a lot of that um, was down to this hope that they would have their own home produced vaccine that they'd be able to use and, of course, save them money and everything else. Of course, the vaccine wasn't ready on time. And I believe it's actually still in testing now. And news has got a little bit quiet on, on that front. And of course, then once Vietnam had this Delta wave, which hit what late April, early May, they had very, very low vaccination rate and very low number of vaccines available as well, um, which of course hit the tourism industry really hard. Um, I mean, fast forward to beginning of 2022, Vietnam have done a fantastic job at rolling out the vaccines. You know, they, they got their supply. Now they've got one of the highest rates of fully vaccinated populations in Southeast Asia. So they're I just checked this morning, uh, about 78%. Um, but that was a completely different situation last year and perhaps one that um, the government perhaps might have regretted that strategy. Yeah, this uh, we, we could probably do a whole show about, about vaccines and the number of vaccines that were tested and trialed and, and fell by the wayside. There were quite a few of them. I remember there was one in Australia as well. Australia spent a huge amount of money uh, investing in developing their own vaccine. And then they completely canned it, so all that money was wasted. But yeah, as, as we move into, you know, we are in the vaccinated era, well, particularly here in Southeast Asia, other parts of the world, not quite so much yet. And um, there'll be more vaccines coming through over the, the coming months and years. Yeah, when nanocovax, when, when will we see that being, being rolled out? Yeah, exactly. Um, so let's move on then. Um, and this was another of my picks. It seems like we're doing all my picks first, <laughs> which was Connect at Singapore. Do you remember that? Well, I do, but only since you, you reminded me. <laughs> so to remind our listeners who may have completely forgotten about this, this was this concept uh, that the Singaporean government opened up, and I think they opened it up early last year. And it was essentially... Um, kind of travel business facilities in a bubble. Um, so the whole idea was they they built it at Expo, uh, which is right next to Changi Airport, and international business travelers would be able to fly in, stay at this kind of hotel facility, 
and be able to meet with their local Singaporean counterparts, but without the risk of infecting the Singaporean counterparts. Um, so they were all of these kind of fancy facilities where you'd have meeting rooms divided in the middle with plexiglass. Um, if you wanted to, you know, pass a piece of paper to the other side to sign. And, you know, I think, Gary, we were talking about one of the main reasons why we thought this was implemented was really for, for people to be in the same room and, and sign off um, business agreements. Um, you would have to put this piece of paper under, you know, like a UV sterilizer and out the other side. It was a very kind of sci-fi <laughs> approach really expensive for travelers to stay in and also closed very quietly. Um, so once Singapore started to tighten its border restrictions mid last year, um, these facilities were closed and they never really reopened again. Um, so it's, it's again, another one of those things that kind of fizzled out, didn't it? Yeah, it was one of those things that to somebody, it seemed a good idea at the time. I remember somebody likened it to business contract signing speed dating, but obviously in, in, a, in a COVID safe environment. Yeah, it, it never really seemed like a particularly good idea. But uh, at, at that time, so many things were being tried just to try and keep uh, travel flows open, business deals getting signed, that kind of thing. So I guess, you know, Singapore may say it, it was worth giving it a, a try, but but it seems that it didn't work. And as you said, it, it sort of quietly disappeared. So let's move on to number five. And again, another one of yours. And this is also from Singapore. And this is we're not going into a lockdown. Singapore backtracking on its endemic policy in Q3 of last year. Come on, enlighten us on that. Yeah, I mean, so I think this is probably across Southeast Asian countries, we noticed that whenever a government says, we're never going to go back into another lockdown, <laughs> inevitably, right? a month later, two months later, they would go back into a lockdown. Um, and Singapore, I suppose, technically never really went into a very strict lockdown, but definitely towards the middle of last year, the Singaporean government were starting to give a, give a lot of airtime about how it was moving towards an endemic policy. And it was one of the first in the region to say that, right? Um, it was quite a bold move for Southeast Asia at the time. It was laying out how this could happen, laying out different vaccination targets. You know, once we've hit 50%, we're going to do this. Once we hit 80%, we're going to do that. But saying that, there was almost that idea that you wouldn't backtrack, right? You would move forward from one phase to the next phase to the next phase. But of course, um, again, Delta um, threw those plans out of the window, didn't they? Um, so we saw Singapore finally enter phase three of its relaxation of, of policies. And then matter of a few weeks later, it had to revert back to its phase two heightened alert um, from the 22nd of July. Um, it then went back to a phase three, then back to other, it just basically switched back and forwards, back and forwards between number of groups, number of people who could gather. Um, and I think there was a lot of negativity around that, wasn't there? There was a lot of the, you know, pe people were questioning, is the government really committed to this endemic vision or it's just lip service? Yeah, as you said, this this promising to go forward and then taking a couple of steps forward and then three or four back has really characterized a lot of what we've been talking about over the last, particularly the last year, I would say, not just in Singapore, but across the region. And we'll come to some more examples of that in a moment. At the moment, fingers crossed, things do look to be moving in a forward direction. But if anybody hasn't listened to Karen Yue's interview last week that we did with Karen Yue from TTG Asia, she made some really interesting comments about this, that going forward into the future, we may have to accept that governments will take action on borders if there is a threat to public health and safety um, with new variants arriving. You know, that is a, that is a trend we've seen in Southeast Asia, and it, it does look as though they would be prepared to do that again in future. So yeah. 
uh, yeah, let, let's, let's bear that in mind. Let's move on to number six. Hannah, we've talked about this before, um, and it's an ongoing debate. And this was in Indonesia, where the minister for coordinating the, the recovery there said, we don't want backpackers to come into our country. Where do we go with this? I mean, we've, we've discussed this many, many times. It's basically a part of this reappraising tourism to be high yield, high, high spending, high end travelers. Is it just hogwash or is it actually an effective policy? I guess we'll have to wait and see. How do you actually turn backpackers away at a border if they've applied for a visa, they've got the right medical insurance and they're actually in your airport? Do you actually say you can't come in? It just seems that that would be ridiculous. I guess it does mean that the promotions will now be more higher end, whether that's a short term thinking, whether that's something that will endure into the future, particularly if rebound uh, demand isn't as strong as, as Bali and Indonesia wants. Um, you would imagine they'll just welcome back actually anybody else who wants to come into the country and spend money. Yeah. Absolutely. I don't think I need to add any more to that, Gary. I think you've summed that up. <laughs> um, so the next one, something that didn't happen, and, and this is a biggie, isn't it, Gary? This is, this is something that all countries in Southeast Asia hope would happen and has still not happened, and that is China reopening its borders. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the most important inbound market to all of the countries in our region, it account, China accounted for about 23% of all arrivals into Southeast Asia in 2019. And as countries now start to welcome back travel, as they start to open up their borders, you know, they are confronting a stark reality, which is that the Chinese travel industry is missing. Australia is going through this process as well. Australia reopened yesterday, big market for, for Australia. And exactly the same here in Southeast Asia. Second guessing what will happen next is quite difficult. There are a lot of rumors flying around actually at the moment throughout the industry that uh, the Civil Aviation Administration of China is actually reaching out to some of the international airlines in terms of increasing their capacities into and out of China for the next set of schedules, which will be the spring and summer schedules. Uh, at the moment, there's, there's actually nothing coming out of that. It's just rumors. I've also heard that some of the hotels, some of the big hotels in the major cities are starting to reach out to their international customers again. I think that is just a, a kind of service of saying, you know, we will start preparing for your, for your next visit. But at the moment, China does retain its zero tolerance approach to COVID-19. As we've seen, that's impacting very, very heavily in Hong Kong as well. Um, so, you know, it would be a huge about term for China to, to go a different route on that. And I don't expect anything to happen immediately. But, you know, there could be some cracks slightly starting to open for later in the year. But, you know, I don't think a, a reopening on, on the scale that everybody is hoping for is likely anytime soon. So next pick, and this is, again, Gary, this is something that I had completely forgotten about. And this is the Thailand special tourist visa. Tell us more. Yeah, well, if you remember back to, when was this? This was probably about September 2020. Two countries in our region were looking to reboot travel, as has been the case throughout the pandemic. That was Thailand and Singapore. Singapore was looking at its travel bubble concept, but Thailand was trying to re revive inbound travel. As you've mentioned earlier, Hannah, this was in the pre-vaccinated era, and it came up with this idea of a special tourist visa. And I guess we all remember, or if we don't remember, I can remind you, there were those photos, I think it was about the, the end of October 2020, of a group of Chinese travelers. Now, we, don't know, we still don't know whether they were tourists, whether they were business travelers, uh, or whether they're actually Chinese people who actually live in Thailand. It never became clear. But there was a group of about 25 arrived in full PPE, they were stood outside the uh, Bangkok airport 
you know, absolutely covered in, in, in plastic and that kind of thing. Their luggage was, they were waiting to get on a, a special bus. Their luggage was all enc encased in, in plastic and it just looked very dystopian. Um, the special tourist visa was really designed to try and generate a little bit of traffic back into Thailand. It didn't last very long. The timing was simply against it. You know, this was pre-vaccinated. Um, the world was still in shock about what was happening with COVID-19 and travel and tourism really wasn't high on the agenda, but Thailand obviously needed to try and reboot its international travel. The, Thai, the special tourist visa did happen. It's one of those that we're discussing that, that actually did come into effect, but it wasn't long-lived. And as we know, uh, what happened later is that Thailand took, took different routes. Um, but yeah, that was that was the, the very first attempt, really, to try and revive tourism in, in Thailand. Yeah, uh, I remember. I think we must have talked about that so much at the time. I think I must have written about it so much in my, uh, in my report, and it's just gone. <laughs> the memory of that has just gone and been replaced by the sandbox, which we also seem to have spent a lot of time uh, discussing, haven't we, Gary? We have. I mean, there was a point, you know, where Thailand was just coming out with so many ideas. And I think we said on the, on the, the podcast around about this, I don't remember when this was, the end of 2020, early 2020, it just looked like they were throwing loads of concept darts at a dartboard and hoping that one would stick. Um, and as you said there, Hannah, you know, the Phuket sandbox was the one that stuck. But what happened to that in, in sort of, as it got going, what happened to it? Yeah, I mean, so this was an, a, a story that didn't happen out of this, because of course the Phuket Sandbox did happen and still stands now, was the, that initial target from the TAT. Um, so TAT had originally um, forecast 129,000 tourists would arrive into Thailand in Q3 2021 under the Phuket Sandbox. Now, in fact, their overall international arrivals from July to September we're about 45,000. Um, so that's woefully far from this target. And again, just ties into how difficult it is to forecast, um, you know, a reopening and what the reaction of that is going to be. You just can't predict it, can you? No, you really can't. And uh, we'll come to that in a moment. We've got a little bit of a mini Thailand section going on here because there's been so much to talk about. Another one that you picked here, Hannah, was there was promised financial assistance for Thai airlines, which is one of the legacy carriers in the region, which has been under such pressure over the last two years from the finance ministry. Uh, what happened to that? Yeah, I mean, and this isn't even just for Thai airways, but for just airlines in Thailand in general, um, the finance ministry seemed to have promised soft loans for airlines. And I think that they promised this maybe towards the beginning of 2021. And these never materialized. It got to the point where airlines in Thailand actually formed their own association, the Airlines Association of Thailand, to be able to lobby the government. And they, they, they kept dropping the demands. So, you know, they, they had said that originally they had requested 25.3 billion Thai baht in soft loans. And that had no answer. <laughs> so then they sought 5 billion Thai baht in low interest loans. Still nothing really happened. And they were saying, you know, this 5 billion baht is just to literally cover employment. That's not including the leases, the jet fuel, the other expenses. We just don't want to make, you know, so many people unemployed. Still no assistance. I mean, and, you know, late last year, I think Thai Asia even went on the record saying that they'd really given up waiting for this assistance. They were they were seeking other ways to raise this capital because it, it never arrived. Um, and I think that that demonstrates just the underwhelming support, I think, at times that some governments in Southeast Asia have had for their tourism stakeholders. And, you know, for countries like Thailand or Vietnam or Indonesia, airlines 
and certainly domestic airlines have flying routes that are almost providing a, a service for the country, being able to connect to maybe more, more remote places or places that people um, wouldn't perhaps visit for leisure. And you, you don't support the airlines, you cut these routes off and eventually you cut off your economic recovery as well. Um, because they don't have that flow of visitors, whether that's local or international. Underwhelming, a beautiful euphemism, and I've got nothing to add to that. Very well said. Had <laughs> to think about that one. <laughs> so, so we can't leave Thailand without the, the topic du jour, which is always Thailand likes to make forecasts about what's happening in travel and tourism over the coming months and years. Plenty have come and gone over the past two years. The current forecast, Hannah, these are the two I picked up recently. Uh, the Tourism Authority of Thailand said last week that it's anticipating 10 million, neatly rounded up, 10 million international arrivals in 2022. And the Thailand Development Research Institute, which is one of the advising boards to the government, says it thinks five to six million is probably the top level figure for 2022. They both can't be right. Who knows what it will actually be? Yeah, let's see. Throw a data to dartboard and find out. <laughs> so moving on then. Um, We'll leave poor Thailand alone. And the the one development that hasn't happened that we have banged on about a lot, or I feel I have, the ASEAN Travel Corridor. Again, I think I've, I have given a lot of airtime to this and how I think it originally came up from November 2020. Every time there's an ASEAN meeting, perfect example last week, the Indonesian government, again, were calling for a, an ASEAN Travel Corridor, and it's still not come to fruition. Um, and I think um, what has become quite apparent now is there really is this need, at least perhaps not for a, an ASEAN travel corridor, but at least a pan-ASEAN mutual recognition of vaccine certificates. Uh, right? We had this whole debacle last week uh, where Malaysian travellers arrived into the Philippines and their vaccine certificate wasn't recognised by the Philippines. And each country has brain- blamed the other for for that kind of lapse. But certainly they need to get that in place, ASEAN. If not a travel corridor with agreements, at least recognise one another's vaccine certificates, right? We have to. Yeah, it's, it, as, as borders start to reopen again, however gradual or however open-bolted they actually are, um, these issues are going to keep arising. You said this, Hannah, we were discussing this off-air. And the Malaysia-Philippines one is pretty interesting because, as you said, those Malaysian travellers were uh, arrived at Manila Airport, were told their, their vaccine certificate wasn't acceptable and they would be deported. Uh, that was actually smoothed out by a diplomatic. I think the, the Malaysian consulate actually smoothed that out. And then Malaysia and Philippines actually came to an agreement that they would actually recognize each other's vaccine certificates. And you do, it just begs the question, why wasn't this done before? You know, that's a bilateral agreement. This is not an ASEAN agreement. That's an agreement between Malaysia and Philippines. But, you know, there are 10 countries in our region. Are they all going to be doing bilateral agreements with each other? It just seems ludicrous. And we're at the point now, as you said, Hannah, where an ASEAN travel corridor is so overdue, but it just doesn't seem as though there's going to be any progress. Yeah, I mean, I think eventually... They won't even need it because just everybody will have all of these bilateral agreements with one another that kind of supersede the need to have an ASEAN travel corridor. I think that's where we're going to end up. Yeah, I agree. So rant's over. Let's talk about probably one of the biggest developments that didn't happen over the past two years, Hannah. 
We talked about this ad nauseum. Everybody wrote about this, talked about this. And that was the Singapore-Hong Kong air travel bubble. Come on, remind us what happened. Yeah, there. I mean, this this was, <laughs> like you say, we gave this so much airtime again. Um, we were so excited about it. This was going to be really one of the first true leisure air travel bubbles that was going to be set up between Singapore and Hong Kong. And it just kept falling through. Uh, the first time it fell through because Hong Kong had an increase in cases. Uh, the second time it fell through because Singapore had an increase in cases. And then it looked like it might be on again and then if eventually with you know Hong Kong's very strict COVID policies, they just decided that the two policies in the two countries were too different to be able to set up any kind of air travel bubble between them. Um, so it was lots of lots of false starts, lots of people getting their hopes up, people booking tickets even, and things being called off last minute. And it just never appeared, did it? No, it's not. And it was probably the, the definitive travel bubble in the region. You know, it, it got so much airtime, it got so much media coverage. And, and there were various kind of sub-agreements that peeled off from this. I guess one of the interesting ones that also didn't happen was the Australia-Singapore air travel bubble. That was floated a few times. It looked like Australia and Singapore might set up an air travel bubble for, for business travelers and students, perhaps. Um, that got a lot of airtime, that got a lot of coverage, and then Australia decided to go its own way. We don't know what happened with the negotiations there. But yeah, th this travel bubble concept, let's let's hope that that gets burst and we don't ever hear about that again. Yeah, I mean, certainly I don't. Now, now it's all about the sandboxes, isn't it? It's about sandboxes and uh, vaccinated travel lanes. And there were a multitude of other ASEAN agreements which didn't come off, right? We, we saw a lot of announcements where things were agreed in principle. <laughs> Malaysia, Indonesia, uh, vaccinated travel lane. Uh, Malaysia, Brunei, reciprocal green lane. Um, a Singapore, Vietnam, reciprocal green lane. And of course, you know, this Batam Bintan Singapore travel corridor, which was proposed way back in April 2021. I mean, and of course, this is now about to happen, finally, but that's, that's almost one year later. And even the Sihanouk sandbox, which was how Cambodia was originally proposing to reopen, only to open up Sihanouk province. Um, and then later, luckily for Cambodia, changed its mind and opened up the whole country. But there have been all of these agreements in principle, these announcements, this excitement, and things didn't come off, did they? You referred there to two Malaysia agreements, which is, brings us into our, uh, our penultimate point. You know, you mentioned there the Malaysia-Indonesia vaccinated travel lane that was promoted with a meeting between the Prime Minister and the President of Indonesia at the end of last year. The Malaysia-Brunei uh, agreement was, I think that's over a year ago now, that one's starting to be talk about rebooting Malaysia and Brunei. But the issue with Malaysia at the moment is its, it's borders still aren't open, like most countries in the region are moving towards reopening. Malaysia still hasn't. And that is it's a very complex situation. Twice, uh, the National Recovery Council here, which is an advisory board to the government, has proposed to the government that it should reopen its borders. The first time was at the end of last year. It suggested the reopening should be by the 1st of January. More recently, the NRC recommended to the government that the opening should be by the 1st of March. That doesn't look like it's going to happen. We're only a few days away from the beginning of March, and the government has now said um, that it's not going to reopen at that point. Again, rumors flying around uh, the industry at the moment that it really can't hold out much later than the end of March, and uh, the last week of March might be a, a timing for that. But at the moment, there's, there's no clarification, and we're still kind of in the dark, aren't we, Hannah? We are, unfortunately for us and the industry at large as well. Um, and our last one, I mean, and this was one I think we talked about a couple of weeks ago, but we, we couldn't resist 
uh, sticking it in again. <laughs> was was that latest news where, uh, well, due to a typo, wasn't it? <laughs> it was announced that Jakarta was closing to international arrivals, and then <laughs> clarified, no, 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 we we are still open um, to international arrivals. And I think that that kind of sums up <laughs> a lot of the government uh, policies and. Um, attitudes, I think, towards tourism uh, in the region over the past couple of years. Confused. Yeah, absolutely. Because it was that, that was announced around about the time when Indonesia was saying that Bali was going to reopen, that flights were going to come back, and then Jakarta was supposed to be closing. Apparently, it was, a, as you said, a mistyped press release. I don't know how you mistype saying that you're going to close, um, but actually you're not. That's some pretty poor typing. But either way, yeah, it just adds more confusion into the mix. We've had a lot of this over the the past two years, and as we tried to set out here in, in our list of proposals, you know, that some of these were well-meaning, some of these were rather confused, some of these were very contradictory. There were lots of reasons that some of these didn't happen, or if they did happen, they weren't successful. Circumstances and timing was also an important point. But you know, when we look back over the last two years, Hannah, we've had a lot to talk about. I guess that's a good thing. Yeah, you're right. You know, and I, I was looking at this list yesterday, and I was thinking, well, you know, I think that there is this perception from outside Southeast Asia that the region here has been very static, you know, in terms of what's going on for tourism, in terms of reopening borders. But actually, if you look at that list, it kind of proves that that's not true, is it? I mean, there have been constant experiments about it. Countries have been trying to find ways to make tourism work in one way or another. And that's something that absolutely we have to applaud just not all of these experiments work. And like you say, sometimes it's just out of those, that country's hands, circumstances, Delta, vaccinations, something's failed, some things were successful, some things pivoted. And that's probably just been the story of tourism globally, I suppose, since the start of the pandemic. Yeah, absolutely spot on. Nothing to add to that. So that brings us to the end of part four of our two years of travel disruption series. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and don't forget to send us your thoughts and comments on anything we discussed or anything we missed out. Drop us a message on our LinkedIn page at the Southeast Asia Travel Show. Yeah, meanwhile, you can catch up with the Southeast Asia Travel Show's full back catalogue on our website, www.theseasiatravelshow.com. And of course, you can listen to every single episode that we've produced, including this one, on all the various international podcast platforms. Again, just search for the Southeast Asia Travel Show on each one. And please remember that if you do tune in via Spotify, or Apple Podcasts, which both account for about 60% of all of our listeners, please give us a quick rating and a review, as that will help other people to find the show. So that's a wrap for today, and we'll both return next week with a special guest for part five of the Two Years of Travel Disruption series. We look forward to talking to you then.